every year we turn out a new crop of young people who in effect live in serfdom. They have no access to any kind of economic arrangements around which they can build any kind of positive lifestyle. What shall we do about that? Hello, my name is Stephen Prophet, and welcome to another edition of Cambridge Forum. The question that I'd like to pose to the listening audience today is, what does the civil rights movement of the 1960s have in common with algebra in the 1990s? Little you say, well, guess again. The answer is our guest today, Robert Moses. We've invited Robert Moses to the microphones of the Cambridge Forum to talk about at least two aspects of over three-decade commitment to public service and education, his public service as a civil rights organizer in the 1960s, and his work as educator, mathematician, and founder of the acclaimed Algebra Project. Robert Moses suggests that all of our high school's children should go to college, or at least have access to college preparatory math courses, and that if your child is denied math training today, he or she may be barred tomorrow from acquiring the knowledge and skill necessary to compete in an increasingly math and technologically driven world. Ladies and gentlemen, a word or two from Robert Moses. What I would like to try to do is uh, look at what we were doing in Mississippi and the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s and try to make a connection between that and what we're doing now with the Algebra Project. And one way for us to think about that is in the 60s there was the issue of political access and in Mississippi, particularly, there was the question of the right to vote as a vehicle for political access. And associated with that right to vote, there was a question of literacy. And sort of the critical question was, should illiterates vote? That is, if a person is illiterate, are they denied political access. And most of the country said yes. Um, and certainly Mississippi said yes. Mississippi had a very elaborate procedure uh, requiring an interpretation of the Constitution for people to register to vote. And this is the legal part of their procedure. And so we challenged that. Uh, we took sharecroppers and day laborers and people who couldn't read and write and we took them in as large numbers as we could to the polls and we asked them to tell 
essentially the world, that they wanted to participate in the political process. And through that movement in Mississippi, black people gained access to political power in Mississippi. And so Mississippi today has more black state legislators than any other state and has a very active participation by black people in the political process. Now, the sort of equation that I was drawing out was literacy, the right to vote, political access. And that's part of a more general theme throughout the history of African peoples in this country around freedom and literacy. That is, if you trace the history of African peoples as they came to this country, went through slavery, and then went through Reconstruction, and then went through the process of becoming citizens in this country, there is a theme throughout that history which relates freedom and literacy, struggling to get some tools with which to use to become citizens. Now, what we have today is, I think, another chapter in that struggle, in the relationship between literacy and freedom. So I make a parallel between the right to vote and access to algebra, between the issue of political access and the issue of economic access. That is, I think that certain historical changes have come about so that the right to vote, which was something that we organized around to gain political access, has an equivalent today in math literacy or scientific slash math literacy and the right to economic access. Now, we got political access. We did not get economic access. And there's a great issue today facing the country as to whether, in fact, economic access will be granted not only to black people, but to Latinos and the other minorities who are now very much part of the American scene. So that's basically the overall sort of parallel and connection. Well, I think that our cities have become places where every year we turn out a new crop of young people who, in effect, live in serfdom. They have no access to any kind of economic arrangements around which they can build any kind of positive lifestyle. They have no chance to gain economic access around which they can raise families. And that's what we are doing currently. So 
what shall we do about that? Well, the algebra project is saying there is actually something to do in terms of not something which is reactive and band-aid, right? I mean, there are programs for gun control, but gun control is reactive, right? There are programs about uh, working with adolescent mothers, right? And that's after the fact. What we are saying is there is something we can do about our education system that can put tools in the hands of our young people which will give them some tools for citizenship. And we are saying that they are in the same position as were the sharecroppers in Mississippi in the 1960s when we were there. And whereas then the issue was literacy, which was reading and writing literacy, for these children there is an additional literacy which is based around quantitative information. They must be literate around quantitative information if they are going to be citizens. If they don't achieve that literacy, they will be in the same position as people who could not read and write back in the time of the 60s or the 50s. Those people were effectively barred from political access and really the economic access they had were conditions of serfdom. So that's the issue to go back, question of the vote and political access and literacy in the 60s has a parallel in the 90s. There's a question of math and quantitative literacy and economic access. And there's a window of opportunity for our country to use this as a way to really try to save our democracy, in my sense. Thank you. I have a few questions for you, and then I'd like to turn the questioning over to the audience. The Algebra Project apparently was started in 1982, and I'd like to ask uh, firstly by, uh, I'd like to start by saying, how does it differ in terms of traditional math education that goes on in classrooms around the country today? Okay. Um, it differs in one way in its a curricular process. And um, I learned something in the movement about meetings, namely that meetings can be used as places to empower people. And we learned how to use meetings in Mississippi to empower the people that we were working with so that they came to meetings uh, and instead of sitting like you are doing here, listening to somebody talk, uh, they got into groups and they talked with each other. Each group would have a particular issue that it was trying to work its way through and they would plan how to work their way through that. And it was out of that process that I saw people empowered, uh, some of whom I mentioned like Mrs. Hamer, um, so that the meetings became a place for people to 
credentialize themselves and empower themselves. Now the classroom is a meeting place. It is, however, not often used as a meeting place to empower the people who are in that meeting. And the teacher is often in the position, particularly in mathematics, of standing in front of the class and talking to them, as opposed to having the students talk to each other and try to figure out some mathematics. So one of the things that we have done is get in line with a movement which is not just in math, but in other disciplines as well, uh, which is trying to transform the, what happens in the classroom. Now with the math, we've gone a step further, and we've said that one of the ways to get the conversation going is to have the children ground every important mathematical idea in some common experience. And so out of that experience then, they go through a process which allows them to draw pictures and make models about the experience, to write and talk about the experience in their own language, to structure the experience in what we call feature talk, which is the talk underlying math and science symbols, and then to make their own symbols. So the idea is that the students can get ownership of the process of making math, what is called mathematizing something, that they can learn how to mathematize, and in doing that, you can release their energies and they can get some kind of empowerment in their math class. With what seems to be a rising tide of human misery surrounding us every day in America and elsewhere, men, women, and children in conflict with the law, homelessness, hunger, the HIV infection, violent crime, and general hooliganism, many will ask, how do we see algebra for all at an early age as a solution to anything but the smallest of society's failings? Yeah, it's probably the biggest of their failings. That is, the biggest failing in this country is that we do not believe in our children. And we do not think of this society as a society which really has an investment in all its children. So we look at, we try various devious ways to figure out which ones of them we should educate. And we have various ways of picking and choosing to get the best and the brightest and put them into the right kinds of programs. But we have no real investment in all of them. And we constantly send them that message that we don't believe you can all do this. We don't care what happens to all of you. What we care about is some of you, right? So it's not the least of its problems. It's the most central of its problems. What value is your method of teaching algebra to adolescents who, who may never go on to college? Well, the value is that if they learn it, they will. 
In other words, that's part of the message we send the kids that we really don't believe in all of them, right? So there's some of them who are supposed to go to college and some of them who are supposed not to go to college and we send various messages to them to tell them which ones are supposed to go and which ones are not supposed to go as early as the first and second grades, right? And we have these little groups down there and we put fancy names on them, bluebirds and robins and sparrows, but we are beginning to send them the message, right? That these people are going this way and these people are going this way. Bluebirds over here, sparrows over here, right? And so the issue is, can we now as a society get a message in our own mind that everybody is college material? And how are we going to structure our society so everybody gets a chance at it? So it's their decision whether they decide to go or not. I mean, everybody doesn't have to go to college, but everybody can make the decision. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. But not that they have been railroaded out of that choice. On a macro level, how does math training, tools for citizenship as, as you see it, help America? stay competitive globally and, and keep young people employed in, in what one politician called good jobs at good wages? Well, I think the, 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 there's an issue for America. Um, um, one way to put the issue is um, if this fails, if we don't manage to uh, actually provide tools for our young people so they can be citizens, uh, we will look to Eastern Europe and the Pacific Rim to import the people that we need to be the technicians that we need, right? And so, um, and there are already uh, movements in place, people who say, look, you're never going to educate all these folks, never, don't even bother trying, you know, let's go ahead and immigrate some people quality immigrants, right? Forget about the Statue of Liberty metaphor. Give me your poor, right? Your huddled masses yearning to be free, no. Give me your qualified, right? The people that you have educated and we will show them into our technology, right? So that's the program out there. Now, what does America look like? That's what we don't know. What does America look like? What happens? What's the program for the serfs? Right? Because under that program, we will have serfs in abundance, people who cannot get access to the economic arrangements. What do you have in mind that you are going to do with them? Right? Are you going to lock them all up? Are you going to watch them? Are you going to build some kind of system around them so that their violence only implodes on each other like it's doing now, right? What are they going to do, right? Are you anticipating that they are going to sit there and do that, right? They are, this is not India, right? They have guns. This is not India. 
they don't have a philosophy which says, I have reincarnated here thousands and thousands of time, and I'm going to sit this incarnation out and wait for the next one. They don't have that philosophy, right? So what does America look like if we take that option? That's my question. You're listening to Cambridge Forum. I'd like to ask the audience to sign up and ask questions now. So thank you. As a practitioner, there are many programs that we are bombarded with over the years that we really have a choice to implement or not. What distinguishes your program from others? What is that real hook that gets children turned on? One thing that distinguishes it is that it's a program which started with parents. That is, I was a parent, and I started the program as a parent, and it was school-based from the beginning. So I literally sat in the hallway of a school for five years as we were starting this program. And it has taken on some aspects because of that some features. Along with doing that, we've tried to keep this community and parent focus in it so that as a program going into educational institutions, it's saying that in order to make changes in the schools, we need to get the parents and the community of that school involved. So that gives it a different approach from almost all other curricular change programs. Now, the hook for the students, I think, is simply that they have traditionally been given symbols and asked to try to work with them and interpret them or just manipulate them. What we are doing is saying, you have, you bring something to the mathematical table. You don't come empty-handed, right? Create an atmosphere in the class in which they are not afraid to talk about what it is they bring to the table. Get them talking about it. Get them experiencing some sense of confidence and feeling good about what they do in that mathematics classroom and then get them to creating the symbols which interface with the standard mathematical symbols. So the hook is sort of turning upside down the process by which students are approached to mathematics, right? Don't start with the symbol and ask them to manipulate it or interpret it or understand it or apply it. Start with them, where they are, and help them see what the mathematics is that they already have embedded in their experiences. So that's the hook. The hardest part is the teacher, and let me say what is the hardest part about that. The hardest thing to change in the classroom is that the student is sitting in the classroom thinking in their mind, what's the right answer to this issue or this problem? And they're sitting there trying to figure out the right answer, and a lot of times that means, what does the teacher think? 
because the teacher is the person that has the right answer. So the student is sitting thinking, what does the teacher think about that? And if the teacher is asking a question, they're trying to figure out what is the answer the teacher wants to the question and how is the teacher thinking about that, which is the reverse. Right? That is, what you want to happen in the classroom is the student is sitting there thinking, what do I think? about what's happening and then how do I express to other people what I think and then you want the other students listening actually listening to what the appear is saying and asking themselves what do I think about what he or she is saying and how do I respond right you want a conversation going in the classroom now that's the hardest thing for the teacher to learn, right? How to orchestrate such conversations in the classroom. Because it means they have to practically turn about face from standing and delivering information to figuring out how they, how they create an atmosphere where it's safe for people to say what they think because no one is going to say what they think if they feel they're going to be shot down for it, going to be made to feel stupid or embarrassed or something. So one of the hardest things is that the teacher creates such an atmosphere and then learns how to orchestrate the conversation so the students really talk with and to and listen with and to each other. And so you actually have some conversation. Now let me say a word about that because at one extreme is the idea that there is only one right answer in mathematics, right? And so whenever any question is asked, the, question, the people, students are thinking, what's the right answer, right? And do I know it? At the other extreme, you run into, well, there are no right answers. Everybody has the right to say whatever they like, and nothing's right, right. So that's not true either, except when you have, when you're introducing curriculum through an experience, and you're asking children to draw pictures of the experience, and you say to them, what I want you to do is draw a picture which ex expresses what you think and feel about this experience, and then you ask them to talk and write about the experience and you say, what I want you to do is draw and write and talk about what you think and feel about the experience, then it's true, right? Whatever the student says is right because you have asked them about their thinking and, and feelings about it. And that stage of it is most critical, that is, can you get teachers and students to accept that? That there's a stage in this where you need data from the students. You need to know what they're thinking, right? And the only way to get it is to lay it wide open and say, whatever you're thinking is fine, right? Because wherever we're going to go, we need to start from where you're thinking. So the most important thing is for us to know where you're thinking and for you to know where you're thinking. Okay, we're gonna to have to wrap it up here because we're running out of tape, actually. 
So I, I would just like to say uh, our guest this evening has been uh, educator, mathematician, civil rights organizer, concerned parent, and founder of the Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Algebra Project, Robert Moses. And on behalf of the Cambridge Forum, my name is Stephen Prophet, and I'd like to thank everyone for attending. For an audio cassette of this forum, send $10 to Cambridge Forum, number 3 Church Street, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02138, or call 617-495-2727. Cambridge Forum is a social action program of the First Parish Unitarian Universalist in Harvard Square, Cambridge. The forum is co-sponsored by the Lowell Institute in Boston. Support for this broadcast came from Contours Incorporated, specialists in shape and flat wire.